0: Good morning. Good morning well I'm excited to be back and to bring God's word to you for a second time uh, how many of you have ever felt misrepresented oh, I mean say raise your hand That's good how many of you have ever had your motives impugned or twisted we all have right there's a, a story um, from my dad's life that I, I think is it's sad and funny at the same time, but there were some, some men at our church in Massachusetts that didn't like uh, verse-by-verse teaching. They wanted to skip over any sections that would be controversial. So they wanted you to go verse-by-verse through books, but then anything that's debatable, you just skip. It's kind of an interesting theory, but uh, my dad obviously wasn't a huge fan of that. Um, and so he said no and kept going. But there was sort of a mutiny at the church and this group of men wanted to find any reason to get my dad out of the pulpit and basically get him fired. So they had all these different stories. There's like, they, I think he got called the Unabomber somehow. I don't, that's pretty extreme, but Stalin, I don't know. My dad's a pretty nice guy, so it's kind of weird. But um, one of the things that they said was that he was a, a liar. It was a big uh, this was the main accusation he's a liar mike is a liar and he can't be trusted and my parents went to them and they're like okay like biblically you need to confront us about our sin like wh- when did we lie my dad's like what's the lie and they're like well we can't tell you it's convenient but then they couldn't tell anybody else in the congregation just that he was a liar finally it came out after the whole process that w- the two big lies both took place at our house on the, p- the frozen pond Uh, The first one was my dad said that the puck was out of bounds when it wasn't really out of bounds during an ice hockey game. And number two was he bumped into somebody playing hockey and he said sorry, but the guy could tell from his eyes that he wasn't sorry. (laughs) Those were the big lies that they were going to split the church over. And it's, it's it's a good story but a sad story that happens in so many churches where you have different factions and people competing for their own glory and their own following and status and they seize upon different things and make mountains out of molehills that are oftentimes not even true and i think that's a good introduction to our passage today second corinthians chapter one. one second corinthians chapter one the book of second corinthians is written by paul it's actually probably the third book um, written to corinth but we don't have the the middle book so it goes first corinthians and a lost letter and then second book of corinthians and this book is written to defend paul's ministry paul is looking to defend his ministry against these super apostles they're called there are these people that have set themselves up against paul as these slick talking smooth um eloquent people when paul is kind of this lame seeming quiet uh, unable to speak well individual and they're impugning paul's motives misrepresenting him all throughout this book and specifically in this context in the first chapter which we're going to be looking at um, verses 19 through 22 we paul starts off and he says he greets them and he said he talks a little about his trials about how the god of all comfort is comforting paul in his affliction and even in his sufferings he's thankful because he's able to be like christ in his suffering but then he goes right into in verse 12 travel plans it's kind of an interesting way to start the book but let me just read for you we're not going to uh, exposit this and this is a little bit of a longer intro to give us the idea of what's going on here but let me read for you verses 12 through 18 to give us an idea of what paul is saying here second corinthians 1 12 through 18 for our boast is this the testimony of our conscience that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul begins this section of second corinthians and is talking about his travel plans and is actually defending himself what originally happened is as a, as a little bit of detail i think this will be helpful for us to understand the passage paul was going to come to corinthian to corinth to the church in corinth and visit them and he told them in 1 corinthians 16 i'm going to come and i'm going to spend a long time with you if the lord permits but we can piece together from this book and from the book of acts that paul never made it to corinth the lord did not permit him to go to corinth The Lord had a different set of plans for him. And these super apostles who want to twist Paul's motives actually use that as an example and say, Paul's vacillating or Paul's going back and forth. He's saying yes and no in the same breath. At the same time, he's making decisions according to the flesh. He's just saying anything to get people to like him. And there's this accusation mounted against Paul's integrity. And and they're, they're, they're accusing him of taking his plans lightly and never intending to come to Corinth at all. And so Paul writes in this letter, the first thing he addresses is, is this, this accusation. And just like in other passages of scripture, like in Philippians two and even first Corinthians 11, Paul addresses this super practical issue with doctrine and theology. Paul Doesn't see the disconnect that we so often see in our churches between doctrine and practical Christian living. He sees them as connected, and so much so that when Paul addresses this church and talks about his travel plans, something that insignificant, he gives us a a theological treatise on the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, and, and who he is. He grounds his own integrity in the person of Jesus. So let me keep reading here, verse 19. And I'll read 23 as well, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. So Paul grounds his own integrity, his own heart posture in the Lord Jesus himself. As I was thinking about this to prepare for for this morning, the more and more it's kind of it's kind of a, just a weird thing for Paul to do. It's like he's going to defend himself and say, I promise I wasn't making decisions lightly or according to the flesh. Jesus would never do that. I don't really think that would work for me. <laughs> like, hey, I, I know I said I was going to do this, but I didn't. But Jesus would never do that. And so I have integrity too. And it's, it's a little confusing. But I, what I think Paul is saying is that he is so consistent in his life and in his message about Jesus Christ. The Corinthians know his life is so obviously focused and connected in every aspect to proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so It's almost one with the life of Jesus that he can say, Jesus is like this, and therefore that's what my life is like. The Corinthians would know, oh, okay, yeah, well, we know you're all about Jesus. And if that's what Jesus is like, then that's a defense of your own integrity as well. And I think this is a a convicting thing. I don't think that if I, as I thought about my own life, I don't think there's definitely aspects of my life that I don't think I could use this same argument on. And so although it's not the main point, and, and Paul is an apostle, I think it's a convicting um, aside that Paul can defend his own ministry by pointing to the integrity of Jesus. Finally, before we get into uh, the verses themselves, it's interesting that Paul says in verse 23 that I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. He actually says, I didn't, not only was I not making my plans lightly, I actually changed my plans for your sake. I was thinking of you. And later in verse 2, he details that a little bit. He didn't want to make another painful visit to them. Paul changed his plans because he knew that the sorrow of the Corinthian church would be increased if he visited at that time. And he didn't make that decision according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That in the in the grammar of the of this chapter, we, the, the idea is... I was walking in the spirit and God led me a different direction. And so that's why I didn't come. And I think it's an interesting thing. I was going to have this as my conclusion, but I thought I would just put it at the beginning. The Corinthian church was obviously very disappointed that Paul didn't come. They They were obviously saddened that Paul did not do what he said he was going to try to do. And they felt like... Paul or even Paul walking in the Holy Spirit God was saying no to them in this decision but Paul identifies himself with Christ and says I had the same attitude as Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit I didn't come to you for your benefit I was thinking of you even though it felt like a no to you in my heart I was saying yes to your good yes to your benefit yes to your spiritual blessing so I think that that we can all apply that to our own lives. That although we feel that God is saying no in some area of our life, whether it be trying to have kids or a spouse or a physical trial or anything that's going on in our lives that is seemingly negative, that although that is happening, God's heart towards us is yes. Yes to our good, not necessarily to what we want, but yes to our spiritual benefit. Yes to whatever is the best for us. And I want to convince you of that with three points from this passage. So we're going to focus primarily on the theology of this passage with that long introduction. And I want to convince you that God's heart towards you in Christ is yes. God's heart towards you in Christ is for your good. It's positive. It's God is for you. And we're going to see that in this passage in three different points. First of all, Jesus is God's eternal yes to mankind. Jesus is God's eternal yes to mankind. Look at verses 19 through the beginning of verse 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Paul says, he introduces this, this idea that my integrity is the same as the integrity of Jesus Christ. And he, and he calls Jesus here the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is a, a unique uh, title that's not very often used in, uh, by Paul or in the New Testament at all. It's the full title of Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the Son of God, it, it is a claim to divinity, but it's actually used in the Old Testament to describe the representative of God, the image of God, the one who represents God on earth. Adam is called the son of God in Luke. Israel is called the son of God. The kings of Israel are called sons of God. Different representatives of God on earth are called his sons. But what we see in each of those examples, whether it's Adam, the kings of Israel, Israel themselves as as the nation, all of them fail. None of them can represent God in the way that God wants to be represented because they're all affected by sin. And so only the Son of God in eternity can be the real Son of God. Only Jesus, the eternal Son of God, can actually be the the representative of God on earth. And so this is an Old Testament title, Son of God, that has a lot of meaning behind it. But it also tells us of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, the son. He's the second person of the Trinity who's existed for all time. There was never a time where the son was not. Jesus has always existed with the father and the Holy Spirit in perfect equality and unity and blessedness. And this son of God is Jesus Christ. That's his his human title. Christ not being his last name, but meaning anointed one. It means Messiah. Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one, the prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Testament would have been anointed by oil, but Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit and his name, Jesus means salvation. Paul says this son of God, Jesus Christ, who I'm proclaiming to you, the one who is divine and yet human. He's not yes and no. He doesn't go back and forth. You know, the message that I preach to you, Jesus Christ is not, I'm going to save the world one day and condemn the world the next. Jesus said in John, I did not come to condemn the world, or he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And not only is Paul saying that Jesus has integrity and that he's honest, he could have said that a variety of ways, but he actually says that he's not yes and no. He introduces these two terms, yes and no, to go back and forth between the positive and the negative. And he purposely does this because he wants to say that Jesus Christ is the eternal yes of God. That God's attitude towards mankind is not just negative, not just the judge, but actually the whole entire world and God's plan is moving in a positive direction in Jesus Christ. Every single thing that's happened on earth has happened because God is bringing about his plan in the person of Jesus. He even allowed for the fall to happen in his eternal plan so that his son might be glorified in his life, death, and resurrection. Although we deserve God's judgment and justice and condemnation for our sins, God doesn't say no and condemn us to hell. He says, yes, there is life and happiness and joy still to be found in the person of Christ. Jesus Christ is God's eternal yes, but this passage details even more clearly What that means in in verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Literally, it's as many as are the promises of God, they all find their yes in him. The entire Bible, all of redemptive history, is set up to point to Jesus Christ. It's not a collection of stories, primarily the Old Testament, to teach us moral lessons. That's true, but it's primarily a book about the person of Jesus Christ. From the very very beginning, we learn, Genesis 3.15, right? That right after the fall, God promises there's going to be a descendant of Eve that's going to crush Satan's head. Satan's power is not going to last forever. The world is not going to be underneath Satan's rule for all time. One day, there's going to be a son of Eve who's going to crush Satan's head, but his heel will be bruised. And we see how Christ fulfills that in the cross, that he defeats Satan once and for all, although he is bruised on the cross. But not only the promise to Adam, we see the promise also in Genesis 15 to Abraham, that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's not going to just be Abraham who's blessed in his family. It's expanded now that every single nation will be blessed in Abraham by faith. That Jesus fulfills this promise to Abraham by coming and by believing in him, we become sons of Abraham. And God credits righteousness to us that we haven't earned. So Jesus fulfills that Abrahamic promise. And we can go on and on. It's the Davidic covenant that he's the king. Jesus is the true king who is a son to God. And all the nations from around the world stream to him as the ultimate Davidic king. And then in Isaiah, we can go to the promises that Jesus is not going to just be a king who conquers in power he is that but he conquers through suffering he conquers through death that he causes he bears the sins of many and causes many to be counted righteous isaiah 53 says that jesus not only defeats satan not only does he make us children of god by faith but he does that through his suffering and death and he credits us with his obedience and righteousness and we give Him our sin on the cross. And you can go on and on, and it's in Jesus Christ that, that the, uh, in, in Joel that there's going to be uh, the Spirit pour, poured out on all men. Every promise of God in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ, as many as are the promises of God, and we, we could go on and on detailing that. But the point is, God makes all these promises, and sometimes there's a long time before those promises are fulfilled. And it's like, is this really true? Is this really going to happen? And in the person of Jesus Christ, we see yes. It's like Jesus stands up and says, yes. Can I really be a child of God by faith alone? Jesus stands up and says, yes. Can I really be forgiven of all my sins? Can my sins be transferred to Jesus on the cross and his righteousness credited to me so that I no longer have to live by the law? Jesus Christ stands up and says, yes. Can I really be filled with the Holy Spirit? Can I I experience uh, new life through the death and resurrection of the Messiah? Yes, Jesus says. Jesus Christ is the eternal yes of God. Jesus is God's eternal yes to mankind. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the one through whom we say amen to God. Someone just said amen. Good job. You're tracking Jesus is the one through whom we say amen to God. And so often we don't really know what we just say amen because it's like hallelujah. What does hallelujah mean? We just, you know, people even say it in secular songs, but it means we praise you, Yahweh. It's hallel, hallel hallelujah, amen. Uh, I think that one senator, he didn't really have it right when he said that it's, it's not about gender. It's not amen and a woman. I don't know if you guys saw that a couple years ago. Um, it's a Hebrew word. It means surely, true, I assent to that. That is right. Amen. They would say it, it, it the people of Israel would say it when God would say, hey, from, from Mount Gerizim, hey, there's gonna be curses for you if you disobey. And there's gonna be blessings for disobedience. They would all say together, amen, in corporate worship. Surely that is true. And then I'm sure Corinth, they said this in, in worship. Amen, we set our seal to that. It's true. It shows that we believe whatever has been said. Read the rest of verse 20. It says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God has fulfilled all of his promises and said yes to the world and salvation in Christ. Everything is tied up in Christ. And that's why we say amen through him. That is why we believe in the person of Jesus. God has designed all of human history, all of the world to bring glory to his son. And so if we want to know how do we glorify God, of course, it's through obedience. Of course, it's through a transformed life. But but here Paul tells us that we glorify God by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him. By not relying on ourselves, but relying on him by going to him as the source of all of those blessings. We don't look for blessings, spiritual blessings, outside of the person of Christ. Because everything is connected to him. All spiritual goodness and blessing is found in the person of Christ. That's why we utter amen to God through him. That everything in our relationship with God must go through the person of Christ. It comes through through him to us in his promises fulfilled. And we go back to God through Jesus and say, amen. We can't approach God on our own. We can't approach God outside of Christ. We need a mediator. We need a go between someone who can, as Job nine said, place his hand on us and his other hand on God. And that's what Jesus has done. I think this, this verse also shows us that our, all of our salvation is found in Christ. Sometimes, uh, I don't know if you know the preacher Sinclair Ferguson, he talks about how we can go to, to um, Jesus as the shopkeeper who gives us all different blessings. It's like, Jesus is the shopkeeper, oh, you want like justification? Like here you go. You want to grow? Sanctification, here you go, glorification. And we think of those blessings of God as disconnected from Jesus but the Bible is very clear that we experience all of these blessings in Christ, in our union with Christ. As we're connected to Jesus, we experience these blessings. We are sons and daughters of God because we're connected by faith with Jesus. Who's the ultimate son of God. We are justified, declared righteous before God because Jesus was justified in his resurrection. God accepted his obedience and death in his resurrection. And so in our connection to Jesus, We're justified and on and on and on. There's actually a great quote that I want to read by John Calvin that, that says this better than I could. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of him. If we seek any other gifts of the spirit, they will be found in his anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in his dominion, if purity in his conception, if gentleness, it appears in his birth. For by his birth he was made like us in all respects that he might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in his passion, if acquittal in his condemnation, if remission of the curse in his cross, if satisfaction in his sacrifice, if purification in his blood, if reconciliation in his descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in his tomb, if newness of life in his resurrection, if immortality in the same, if inheritance of all blessings in his kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment in the power given to him to judge. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Jesus Christ is the source of all spiritual blessings from God. And that's why we go to him in faith We glorify God by trusting and believing in Jesus and in what he says. And what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to say our amen? It's not just a a word that we say, but it's a heart attitude of trust. The number one way that the New Testament describes trust or or faith is to receive. To receive something. You don't contribute, you hold out your hands and receive. Receive. The Old Testament in the Psalms sometimes says to roll onto to describe faith. It's like you're rolling off of something and putting your weight onto something else, all your reliance on something. Old Testament also talks about leaning on something. That's what faith is. It's leaning, trusting, rolling onto, looking in John 3. It's something that doesn't contribute anything. It gets everything from what you're looking to. Faith finds all its power in the object of the faith, not in faith itself. And so what we see here is that God is glorified when we say amen to his Messiah, to his Savior. And this is true whether it's the first time that we come to God, we come through Christ, or whether we've been Christians for 50 years. We approach God in the person of Christ. We don't relate to God based on our performance anymore. We're no longer under the law where we have curses for disobedience. All the curses that we have for our disobedience have been born by Christ on the cross. And so we relate to God solely on the basis of Christ's work every day. Jerry Bridges says that our our best days are not beyond the need of God's grace and our worst days are not beyond the reach. We relate to God by faith alone every day. That's what Paul says in in Galatians 2.20. He's not talking about sanctification or growth when he says I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live by saying my amen to the Son of God. In the context, Paul is talking about a righteousness that you have before God. Paul's talking about justification. Am I right before God? Is God angry at me? Am I at peace with God? And Paul says, the only way that I know I'm at peace with God every day is by faith alone. And then we respond in obedience, of course, but we never bring our obedience before God as, as a marker of our relationship to him. finally, Jesus secures our perseverance through the Holy Spirit. Jesus secures our perseverance through the Holy Spirit. Verses 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We utter our amen to God for his glory, but it's God who has established us in Christ. First John 1 says that faith is a gift of God. God even gives us the gift of faith. If we're saying amen to God through Jesus, that's God working in us. That God has worked us in us in the Holy Spirit. He has established us. If you have trusted in Jesus, that doesn't come from you. That's not something that you decided to do. God made you alive together with Christ and you're trusting in Jesus because you've been born again by the sovereign work of God. And it's God is the one who has established us. Not only that, but he's anointed us in Christ. He's anointed us in Christ in our connection with Jesus. Just like that quote from Calvin, we have the Holy spirit given freely to us. And we've been anointed. That that idea is when they were anointed with oil in the old Testament, they were set apart for a specific purpose. We've been set apart by God for a specific purpose to bring the Lord Jesus glory, to live for him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does when he anoints us. It's not primarily, it's not about um, flashy gifts. So often the Holy Spirit is talked of um, only when there's miracles or crazy things going on that are shocking. But the Holy Spirit anoints each and every believer. Paul says, not just me as an apostle, but he says, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He's including all believers and has anointed us. Every single believer has been anointed by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does amazing miracles. Yes, the Holy Spirit has done amazing miracles in the past, but the Holy Spirit primarily has anointed us by allowing us to live lives that are consecrated to the Lord. Look at the list of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a miracle that we can display those attributes in light of who we are in our flesh. And that's what the Spirit primarily does. He's anointed us and he's put his seal on us. God has put his seal on us. It's like a a stamp, a, a sign of ownership, stamped to indicate ownership that we are God's. We didn't come to this point where where God says yes to us in Christ, to all his promises, and we say amen to God on our own. God has established us, he's anointed us, and he's set his seal on us so that we will make it to the end guaranteed because it's not us who's primarily holding on to God, but God who's holding on to us. And the faith in in our lives was produced by God and given to us by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's a legal guarantee is the idea. It's like a down payment. If you have the Holy Spirit, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are saying amen to the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that's a down payment, a guarantee of what is to come. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of sin. And he gives us a new heart that is in conflict with our flesh. And there's often this battle between the flesh and the spirit that we struggle and we're discouraged. But Christian, if if you have the Holy Spirit in you that's creating that struggle, that's good news. Because there is a struggle. If there's no struggle and we're just living in sin and we say we believe, the Bible says faith without works is dead. There's no evidence that we have truly believed. But if there is a struggle, if we feel the conviction of sin and it leads us to put our confidence in Christ, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. That's evidence that the Holy Spirit really is in us, really has changed us and is working. And that's a guarantee that all the promises of God are yours. That's a down payment that one day you'll have a new body free from sin, free from suffering, free from pain in heaven with the Lord forever. It's good news, God's heart towards us is yes. Even though we deserve nothing but a no from God in light of what we've done, in light of our sin and our rebellion and our defiance, God says yes to us in the person of Christ. And that yes is for us if only if we say amen, only if we recognize it and put our trust in what Jesus has done, put our confidence no longer in ourselves, but in Christ. Whether it's the first day of our salvation, or at the end of our lives so in light of that i wanted to read a few promises or statements of god from the scriptures and i was thinking since we've talked about what amen means that it is us saying truly surely we believe it it is so to god's promises i was thinking we could say amen after each one of these promises of god that god As you consider this, God has only made these things true about you because of the person of Christ. In the person of Christ, you received all these blessings and now you can say amen to these things because it's not based on what you've done, but based upon another's work. So let's say amen together. I'll uh, I'll read the, the reference in each verse. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Amen. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Hebrews 4, 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Romans 8, through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Amen. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amen. Finally, Revelation 21, 1-4. through Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away.